Welcome to Policy Brief, an informed and engaging conversation with policymakers, policy influencers, and public sector professionals. My name is Trevor Brown. I'm Dean of the John Glenn College of Public Affairs at The Ohio State University, and it's my pleasure to be your host today. I'm joined by Mike McCurry. Um, his simple title is Press Secretary, although he's done that in lots and lots of different capacities, perhaps most famously uh, for President of the United States, Bill Clinton. Uh, but for us, close to home, he served as press secretary for then presidential candidate, uh, Senator John Glenn. He currently serves uh, as the director of the Center on Public Theology at Wesley Theological Seminary in um, Washington, DC. And looking forward to talking a little bit about that role, but starting with uh, your role as press secretary. Mike, it's a, it's a pleasure to have you. Thanks for joining us. Great to be with you, Trevor. Let's start, we, we like to start sort of civics 101 here. What's the job of the press secretary? What do you do? Well, the job of the press secretary is to speak on behalf of the principal, in my case, the president of the United States when the president is not otherwise available to the media. Now there's a lot more that goes into the role, but it basically is the function of a spokesperson, someone who uh, represents uh, the elected official, someone who takes questions from the media, provides information, uh, makes announcements, and makes pronouncements, uh, and basically tries to serve as that intermediary between the uh, people that we elect and the media that holds them accountable. And it uh, is a very interesting juxtaposition of roles in some ways. So in a minute, I wanna get into that juxtaposition of roles, but start by you've done this in, for a lot of you use the term principles. So I, I'm probably not gonna get the complete list, but you've done it for Senator, uh, you've done it for a presidential candidate, you've done it for a president, you've done it for the Democratic Party. Are there important differences or is it sort of the same role across all those different principles? It really is. It's, it, in the situation, it can be very, very different. My first presidential campaign, of course, was uh, with Senator Glenn in 1984, which really, uh, you know, made me into a lifetime presidential campaign press secretary because I thoroughly enjoyed that and enjoyed traveling with John and Annie. It was just a wonderful experience. And he was such an interesting guy. We didn't do all that well in that campaign. But from that, I gained a lot of appreciation for his integrity and I learned a lot of the skills that go into speaking on behalf of someone who's running for president. That served me well. Prior to that, I had been a press secretary in the United States Senate for Daniel Patrick Moynihan and Harrison Williams from New Jersey. And the roles are very different. In a presidential campaign, you have a, an eager flock of media that are anxious to get all the latest information. If you're a press secretary in the United States Senate, you're competing with 100 other press secretaries to try to get someone to notice what your boss is doing. So it's a, it's a different environment because the task is different. You're trying to make things interesting uh, that the media might not otherwise find interesting. Whereas working for the president or working in a campaign, you really have got you know, a wrapped group of reporters who are there hanging on every word. So that's a different environment. I also had the experience of serving as spokesman for the National Democratic Party. Uh, that's an institutional role. You're actually advocating on behalf of a political party as opposed to an individual, although the chairman of the party is someone that you represent. I, I worked in a trade association. I've worked uh, at the State Department, U.S. State Department as a spokesman. And that's a much different role because you're actually there 
representing the government of the United States as we speak uh, abroad to other countries uh, in a thing that we call public diplomacy. And then, of course, I worked at the White House for the president. So they're all kind of different. They, they have in common that you are there to try to explain to the media what the president is doing and explain to the president why the media is giving him such a rough time, which is sometimes is not just a, not a very comfortable role, but the, it's a very necessary one, I think, very important in our public policy and the way in which we function as a self-governing democracy. So you earlier say there's this juxtaposition of roles and you just mentioned the sort of core role of on the one hand being a communicator and on the other hand being an advisor. So Phil, I wanna, I wanna unpack that a little bit and, and hear a little bit more and, and maybe put you on the spot about Senator Glenn, who for us, we hold near and dear as a, on the one hand, a wonderfully warm communicator. He, in, a, in a small room, when you were with him, you always felt connected to him. Uh, but he was an engineer at heart and, and wasn't always the, the most deft uh, communicator. But what, what was it like working with him on the campaign trail and, and trying to trying to give voice to, to his good values and, and his ideas? Well, he, he, you're correct. He was just such a wonderfully engaging person. And of course, there's nobody who's a bigger star than Annie. Uh, she was really just a delight uh, to be with. And he communicated so effectively in those small group settings. But you're right, when he got off into the stage, it wasn't natural for him. And I, I've thought a lot about that. He, he was not a natural born politician. Um, he was a military officer. And in the Mercury program, he had a whole team of people that were around him to encourage and guarantee the success of the mission. Political campaigns are very different. There are a lot of people who've got their own motives and their own agendas. And I don't think the Senator fully understood that because sometimes he would, you know, we, we, we had lots of internal strife in the campaign. It was not frankly the, the, the most smoothly running presidential campaign that I've ever been associated with. But, uh, and we paid some price for that, but he came out of that experience, I think with a you know, reputation intact as someone who truly was an American hero. And it's not hard to be a spokesman for someone who is so greatly admired. So let's let's talk about an, another person you had to serve as a communicator for. Now I wanna ask about the advisor role. Um, so you served President Bill Clinton, who who was a remarkable communicator, somebody who who just had that ability both in a small room and in a large room to, to connect. And I've gotta believe there were times where he had ideas about things he wanted to say. Um, and you thought, maybe that's not such a good idea. Um, how, how would you engage someone who, as president in particular, but these are powerful people who, who are really comfortable communicating. How would you say, hey, maybe this, isn't, maybe this isn't the day we make that point? Well, you have to approach the role with a great deal of humility because I used to remind myself all the time, nobody elected me to be anything. They elected Bill Clinton to be president. And my job was to reflect and represent his thinking and his ideas and how he would voice himself, whatever he wanted to say to the public. And so you have to almost suppress your own feelings. In fact, even to the point of being an advisor, I, I refrain from giving a lot of advice, particularly in, in settings in which other cabinet people or senior White House staff were there for this reason. I felt like if I took a strong position on any issue that we were facing, a policy question or how to respond to some particular development. 
then all the other people in the room would know that I had a bias. I had, I had, I favored a certain outcome. And I felt my role was to have everyone come to me with the information that they had. And I wanted them to see me as sort of an even broker that I would hear what everyone had to say and then reflect whatever the president decided. And that, that turned out to be the right way to go because very often I had, you know, cabinet members would pull me aside and say, hey, you really have to understand this. And then 10 feet away, another cabinet person would tell me exactly the opposite. So you have to kind of, you know, figure out, well, where does the president come out in all of this? And I, I so I was a little bit circumspect when there were meetings of the cabinet or the senior staff, I used to sit in kind of the outer circle mm -hmm. and just watch everybody and take it all in so that I could then reflect how the decision making was actually done. And I, I think that's the, the quintessential role of the press secretary. And it, it also is useful to the media as they report on what the president is doing. Because if, you, if the media knows that you're in the room where it happens, to, to quote the Broadway play, uh, that you are authoritative and you've got information that they can rely upon. Uh, Trevor, one, just take a little time to explain the geography of the West Wing. The, the press secretary's office sits right there in that West Wing that we see on television, right. uh, fictionalized sometimes. But if you, it's got a back door to that office. And if you go out the back door and turn right, you know, 50 feet away, you're in the Oval Office with the president. Hmm. And if you turn left and go the other direction, 50 feet away, you're in that press briefing room that we all see on television. And I, I almost sort of think of that as a metaphor for the job. You're halfway between these two people in a very adversarial relationship, but your job is to make it a professional and useful one so that we're giving information that the American people can use to make their own decisions, their own choices about what they think of what's happening in Washington. Thank you for that map metaphor. That's great. I was not aware of the literal distance and the literal proximity to both of those things, but this is a great segue into the next question. So we talked a little bit about your connection with the principle you're, you're representing, uh, but then you're representing them too, ultimately the public, but the, the mediator is the press. So talk about how your role, how do you build the relationship you need to be that honest broker with, with the media? Well, in my case, I, I had the benefit of having been around in Washington for a long time. So most of the members of the press corps that covered the White House knew me from some of the previous roles I'd had in the Senate or with the political party. And I think those personal relationships are very important because you know, I knew all the reporters who were covering the president individually. Uh, some of them I liked, some of them not so much. But uh, they all kind of knew that, that I would be pretty much a straight shooter. They knew that I would spin from time to time. Part of this job is to try to put the best possible light on whatever the president is doing. And even sometimes when things don't go particularly well, you have to kind of come up with some plausible explanation of what, what's happened and what you're going to do to fix whatever the problem is. But uh, I think as long as there's that element of trust, that they believe that there's some, uh, with, with some confidence that the person who's speaking is knowledgeable, uh, has access to the facts, has the ear of the president, uh, then they will trust that that spokesperson, that press secretary to uh, reliably report on what's happening. And that, that's what ulti ultimately what they want. You know, in theory, 
both sides want the same thing. They both want the truth to be reported because most presidents think they're doing the right thing. And they, if the truth just got reported, everyone would see how grand and spectacular it is, the, the job that we're doing. And of course, the press wants the truth because that's their fundamental role, to hold accountable those who are in power, uh, to challenge, to look for more facts, to question things that don't seem right. And uh, it, it, it can be a very testy relationship sometimes, but I did everything I could to make it an amicable relationship. So let's, let's transition now. Thanks for all that context and background. That's really, really helpful. Um, and let's, let's talk about the most recent presidency outside of the one we're in now, the Biden administration. And, and as you watch the, the Trump presidency and, and you sort of focused on the way he and his administration communicated with the media, um, and thinking back, you were in that role not so long before then. What were your biggest takeaways? Just sort of to, rather than push you into a corner, just like what, what were your big reflections on that? Well, I, I, I see the Trump presidency when it comes to this critical relationship between the media and the, and the Oval Office, the presidency itself. I see it as an aberration. Um, every president pretty much chafes at the press they have. You can go back and read letters from George Washington and Thomas Jefferson, and they didn't particularly like the press coverage that they got. And of course, we had times in our history when the uh, press was very partisan and aligned with one political party or another. So we've gone through times in which the press is, you know, plays kind of a, an adversarial role, a protagonist role in our system. Uh, but Trump was different. And I think it came from declaring that the press is the enemy of the people. And once you've declared that that press corps is the enemy and that you are, you know, looking disdainfully at the role they play in our system, then it becomes very, very difficult to get done the work that needs to get done. There's just critical information that the public needs to have. The public has a right to know that information. And, and I believe the White House has an obligation to provide that information, but that all broke down during the Trump years. We had a whole year in which the president's press secretary did not do a single uh, briefing for the press. And I, I just think that's not the way things should be done. We've restored some of the natural order uh, during the Biden presidency now, although things are different and things are different because the media has changed. Uh, the political environment has changed because things are so poisoned and difficult to understand sometimes. So uh, I, I, I think we are, we're in sort of a new age when it comes to presidential communications and, and we won't go back to the way it was when I was press secretary. My daughter likes to say, dad, yeah, you were a big wheel at the White House, but that was the last century. And, <laughs> and it's a good observation because things have changed a lot since the 1990s. Well, one of the big things that's changed, and so I take your point that the one one big difference is President Trump's declare, declaration that the press writ large was the enemy. Um, but another big change in this last century is the advent of social media and and the ability of the of the person in the office to communicate directly with whoever he or she sees as their constituents. How much has that change the role of the of the press secretary as this sort of intermediary between between the communicator and the receiver yeah it, it has fundamentally altered the role of the press secretary I've, I've met with some of my successors those who served for president george bush and for obama 
And when we compare notes, I think to myself, boy, the, the job that they had is so different from the job I had because I didn't have to contend with Twitter or Facebook or nonstop pronouncements or a president waking up at 3 a.m. in the morning and starting to Twitter uh, what, what was ever on his mind. Now, in some ways, the press would love that because you know their job is to report everything the president is thinking and doing. And so to have a direct pipeline uh, through Twitter to that is probably pretty useful, but it needs to be regarded with some skepticism. And I think, uh, you know, you have to not take everything that a president Twitters literally, but social media has profoundly changed uh, presidential communications. And I think it's, it's here to stay. Uh, Biden uses it very sparingly compared to Trump. Uh, but I think, you know, those around the president you know, have a, you know, presence in social media and uh, that will continue to have that because it's just a necessary part of the way business gets done. Just thinking back on what you were saying earlier about you sitting around the perimeter, essentially, of the cabinet and listening to the cabinet debate and discuss, and ultimately the president is the decision maker, but I can see the value of you being able to synthesize, synthesize that conversation I would imagine that sort of disappears when presidents can can just you know idly say, "Here's what I think." There's there's no synthesis of that that deeper conversation within the administration. Yeah, that's correct, and I I think it's true that Trump rarely met with his cabinet, so that kind of setting was not you know he he made decisions some kind impulse sometimes impulsively. He's just on the spur of the moment and not really clear what kind of process they have. But that process is, is part of what the uh, role of the press secretary is. I, I, you know, one, one good example of that, preparing to do that daily briefing every day was an exercise in public policymaking. Mm -hmm. um, I would get a briefing book. I would get all the answers that had been developed by the staff and by the various federal departments and agencies and put it all together in a briefing book. And then I would go to the President Clinton and I would say, okay, here are the questions I'm going to face today in the briefing room, and here's the proposed answer. And sometimes he'd look at it and say, well, that doesn't say anything. And I said, I know, that's kind of where our policy is right now. And he would, he would sometimes jump in and call a cabinet member or say, look, Mike's got to answer this question. We have to have a better answer to this question. So actually, the act of preparing for this daily briefing became part of the policymaking process itself, which I think is, is, is interesting and not, yep. not widely reported on sometimes. No, that's, that's fascinating. Just, just as a comparison, so you mentioned that, that uh, under President Trump, there was a year in which we had no press conferences. Average week for you in the Clinton presidency, how many times would you meet with President Clinton and how many press conferences would there be? Well, it was very important to me to to every day that I was doing a briefing to have some time with the president one way or another uh, to go over that briefing book that I described so that we could really I could really get exactly right the way he wanted something said. And that was important. So I, you know, sometimes we would just have routine meetings in the in the morning and I would get a chance to talk to him about how we were going to handle a particular issue. But if that didn't arise on the calendar, I had what were called walk-in rights. I could come before the briefing and just tell the president's secretary, I need to see the president before I do the briefing. And I, I could walk in. I didn't have to schedule an appointment. And I invariably did that. And uh, 
I think it, it was very useful because then I, I would get dialed by President Clinton to a certain meter. Uh, sometimes I would say, okay, here's how I'm going to respond to Newt Gingrich, who is then the Speaker of the House of Representatives. We had sort of a sea change in politics uh, halfway through President Clinton's first term because Republicans took control of the House. And uh, he would very often, he, sometimes he would say, oh, you can't say that because I talked to Newt last night and, you know, we were trying to work something out. And so I, and, and, you know, there were other staff people there. We'd all look at each other and said, you talked to Gingrich last night and nobody knew it. And so it was important, pretty important to have that information. So, you know, that it goes back to the point that you're not there to represent your own thinking. You're there to represent the president's thinking. The more access you have to the president, the better you can do the job. Interesting. Well, in a minute, I want to turn to focus on the current presidency and ultimately the future. But I, I do want to come back to something you, you said just a little bit ago, which was President Trump declared the, the, the media as the, the enemy. Um, uh, and yet he had favorites in, in the media and those those would would change. How, how does that, you know, sort of a layer below the just general pronouncement that this is fake news. How, how does courting one press um, outlet over another change the dynamic for, for someone in your role? Well, it, it causes problems because you can, a favorable treatment to one reporter sometimes generates better coverage or maybe a, a splashy article on page one, but then you have 99 other reporters who are a little bit uh, miffed that they didn't get equal treatment. So you have to be sparing in how you court these relationships. And good reporters are not there to be friends with the president. Uh, they are not there to have a social relationship. They're there. It's all business. And I admired the reporters who, you know, stuck to what their job was and didn't try to kind of come cozy up to Bill Clinton and, you know, try to be pals with him because that's just not the role that the reporter should play. Neither should the White House staff think that they are going to have you know, good personal relationships. Now, I, I had, you know, I had a lot of friends in the press corps. When we were traveling overseas, we would go out to dinner sometimes, but, but I knew what the boundaries were, and I knew that you had to be very careful. So treating, you know, one reporter, one news organization with a little more, uh, you know, favoritism over others inevitably would cause some problems. Now, sometimes we did that deliberately because we wanted to get a story on page one because it would then drive coverage from some of the other news organizations. But we were pretty careful and intentional about doing it. It kind of comes to an issue that always arises, which is about leaking. You know, how do you, do you leak? What circumstances do you leak information out? And generally we did it when we were trying to advance a particular objective. Uh, we did not do it uh, when we thought there was going to be some you know, adverse consequence from leaking or when it was just a leak that came about from some person who was disgruntled, who just didn't uh, go get with the program, which happened on occasion. So ultimately, one, one group we haven't really talked a lot about yet, and this will be our transition into the, the sort of present and future, is, is the, the public. What what do you think that the, the Trump presidency has done for sort of faith of, uh, of Americans in their elected leaders and, and their ability to communicate in a truthful and honest way? 
a headline yeah. we often hear is declining trust and faith in, in public institutions, inclusive of our elected officials and the press. Is yeah, that an it, accurate headline in your, your mind? It very much is. I and mean, we see we see that distrust for government and the institutions of government really at an all-time high now. Um, I was looking through some data the other day, and, and only 20% of the American people report themselves as believing that they are getting accurate information from the government, uh, which means that 80% of the American people are skeptical and mistrustful in some ways. And there is a very partisan divide on this. The way Democrats look at a Democratic president and Republicans look at a Republican president creates a real polarization in our political culture. And I think that's unfortunate. But if you look, you know, just about every issue that you can imagine, immigration, uh, COVID, uh, you know, health, education, everything that we are dealing with that are critical issues on our national agenda, there's a, a huge disparity for, between the way Democrats, self-described Democrats and self-described Republicans look at it. A lot of people call themselves independent, but it turns out that they tend to affiliate with one side or the other. And I, I think it's very, very hard to repair that breach. Uh, obviously, President Biden came to office saying that he was going to try, but you can already see in the early stage of his presidency that uh, we're kind of reverting to these patterns where it, it's almost constant political warfare. And I, I think that's a dangerous thing for our country. So you mentioned Biden and talked about, you've talked about him a little bit already. So now I want to turn the attention to sort of where we are now and, and where we go in the future. So Biden presidency comes in in the wake of, of a very changed political environment, certainly than the one you operated in. What are your sort of early reactions to how the Biden administration is handling that act of communicating to the public? Well, President Biden has stayed very focused on a, a pretty complicated agenda. And he obviously has done this in the midst of one of the worst public health crises the country has ever faced. And so he's had to be very sharply focused on the response to the pandemic and then you know, trying to advance some of the responses to that, particularly the relief bill. Now the, the, the very large infrastructure package that he's trying to put together. Um, it looks very much like that this is going to be done on partisan terms, uh, not dissimilar from President Obama when he tried and successfully passed a major change in the nation's uh, health care uh, insurance structure. And I, you know, I, I mean, I give President Biden good grades. I think he has performed admirably. He's got a, he has a, a, a Donald Trump never got above 50% in his favorable rating in polls, and President Biden is around 60-65% uh, with an approval rating uh, so far in his presidency. And I think that's because he, he seems a genuinely accessible person. Uh, his communications are direct. He is known to be fairly loquacious, and he's suppressed that. I don't know whether that's good staff work at the White House, but he he sticks to a script, and he doesn't get dragged into a lot of tangential debates with the press corps or get off message, as we say in politics. So he, he's pretty much stuck to his guns. Now, whether he can continue that, whether he can successfully prosecute the case for this enormous uh, relief and infrastructure package that he's trying to put through Congress, uh, we'll see what happens. That's probably not going to play out until sometime this fall. 
But I think at the end of year one, when people are writing all the stories in the press about year one of the Biden presidency, I, I think on balance, it'll be a, a good report card as opposed to one that you know shows the blemishes. So you highlighted that he's got a, a complex set of policy priorities and the environment is far more complex. Sort of from, a, again, your role, thinking back in your role as press secretary, what, what are the tactics that press secretaries and the administration can use to keep the public focused on those key policy priorities? Well, sometimes it involves working around the press corps that is captive at the White House. You know, the White House press corps sits in these little cubbyhole offices all day long uh, dreaming up mischief and ways to make the press secretary miserable. I mean, that's the way I felt sometimes. But uh, <laughs> the response to that very often, and it, just about every president has done it, certainly President Clinton did, Obama did, Trump did to an extent too, is to get outside of Washington, to go out and talk to people to, you know, in Trump's case, he had big rallies. In Clinton's case, he used to go and, go and do roundtables with local citizens, local leaders. And that drove press coverage in local media markets, which I think was important because, you know, people, to the degree that they tune in and pay attention, they, you know, they get a local newspaper, they get local television reports, and they would uh, see more of the president in that context than in what they saw maybe in national news coverage. And I think that's important. Now, <clears throat> that plays against the trend in journalism and in the business of journalism where we've seen a decline in local reporting. And I think that's a, a troubling development. We see local newspapers disappearing, not being able to make it financially. And we lose something when we lose that coverage, not only of what's happening in Washington, but of local government, You know what's happening in our county board of supervisors or the city council. And uh, so I, I'm a little bit despairing of the condition of journalism and, and add to something that you mentioned earlier, the mistrust of information. People don't believe uh, even factual information that they're getting from the media. And I, I think that's, uh, that, that's worrisome because we need to have a literate citizenry if our democracy is going to function well. So let's, let's bring this towards a close by talking about that issue here at the end, to sort of the future of an informed citizenry and one that trusts the, the information it receives. And what you, you serve in a very interesting role. Tell us a little bit now about um, the Center for Public Theology and, and how, we, how, how we restore faith and trust in, in the values of democracy and, and, and the, the information we receive from it. Well, I, I think it all goes to making our institutions of government more accessible and helping people understand. So, I, you know, in, in your case, what the Glenn College is doing, you know, through training people in public policy and understanding how policy is made, that, that's critical because we need an educated group of scholars and teachers who are going to go out in the world and help, you know, help others understand really the functioning of our democratic institutions. But I think it also means that you need to engage other institutions that are credible and reliable. So in my case, um, I, when I got out of the White House, I actually got interested in what we call public theology, which is the way in which religious faith traditions impact public policymaking. And I went and got a degree at our local Methodist institution and got involved with them. And now I teach in a program that trains young seminarians who are going to go out to local churches or other types of ministries to be 
more equipped to engage their congregations or their audiences in dialogue, you know, real honest dialogue about some of these critical issues. Because I think we turn, instead of turning to the loudest, angriest voices in our politics, we need to turn to people that we trust. And, you know, sometimes clergy, uh, people who are in the faith world are people who are considered more reliable when it comes to, you know, talking about the contemporary issues that are in the public square. So I'm, I'm kind of working in that arena now, hoping that that may be just maybe just one way in which we can address some of this polarization and bitterness and mistrust that exists in our uh, politics right now. So, so one way I, I hear that is in, in you and your role formerly as press secretary, turning to a different institution, in this case, the, the ministry, uh, to serve as that kind of intermediary between institutional life, the, the big institutions that are out there and, and the people that are interface with them. Um, what, what faith, to use that term, do you have in the, the restoration of people's confidence in the press as an institution? Well, I, I think it, it, it's a, that is a long-term project. Um, and I think it, it, it requires lifting up and educating people about where are the reliable sources of public information. Uh, there's so much mistrust now that we need what, what we sometimes call news literacy. Uh, and I've, I work with a couple of groups that are actually trying to develop curriculum for the K through 12 uh, age bracket to teach people about where do you go to get real information? It's not just what you see splashed across the internet, but where are reliable sources of information that are factual uh, that you can then use to inform your opinion? Uh, my old boss, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, used to like, he used to say, we're all entitled to our own opinions, but not to our own facts. And I think developing an appreciation for factual, unbiased information is important. And of course, that requires of the press to move away from opinionated journalism and move more towards, uh, here's something that you can rely upon that is just the factual information, and then you can go elsewhere or maybe elsewhere in the same newspaper to find opinions that shape your own thinking. Uh, but we need kind of to restructure the way in which the definition of what we call public information. Well, Mike, thank you very much for sharing your both factual recollection of your time as press secretary, but also your your deep thinking on these issues. And, and, and thank you for your service to our patron, Senator Glenn, um, and, and more importantly, to our democratic enterprise. Thank, well, thank, and thank you. Thank you for... Thank you for all the work that you're doing at OSU too. I mean, I think this is a critical area and the more people that we can uh, educate and more people we can get interested in public service and serving in the kind of role that I had, I think we'll be better off for it. So, so go for it. Thanks, Mike.